Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Kate Mouse. Hi, Kate. Oh, so much better for being in here, Bron. Excellent. Yeah. Good to hear. It's been nice. We've had some nice weather, so people have been out and about recently, and it's sort of tempering off a little bit, but conditions are still good. It's not too windy, so it's nice to hear that people are getting out there and enjoying it, and hope we, hopefully we can inspire them to do more of it today. I, I hope so too. Hey, uh, before we get into the show, thanks very much to you, Tim Thorpe, as always, for Vital Bits, six hours of Vital Bits this weekend, wrapping it up. Great uh, bit of Neil Young tribute this morning. It's his oh, birthday. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there was a bit of Bob earlier. I just thought Brian Wise had um, possessed him for a little while there. But, but no, there's <laughs> a bit a of overlap there. He did do a great show yesterday. Yes, I very much enjoyed um, listening to Off the Record yesterday. But thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits today. Thank you to Andrew for Soulful Bits, to Edith for Things to Do Today. And uh, you can catch them all next Sunday. And, of course, Tim Saturday for his... Uh, his uh, first vinyl bits for Saturday as well. We've got a really big show lined up. We're going to launch straight into it. Um, shortly, we're going to be catching up with our coastal paleontologist extraordinaire, Ben Francischelli, and he's taking a slightly different look at things this week. He's actually... Um, of course might- he is. <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, you might have heard last time Ben was on, he was talking about a, an exhibition which is currently being designed. It'll take place next year at Bayside Gallery. Um, taking a look at the, the mighty Megalodon as well as other uh, ancient marine megafauna uh, and other marine creatures that that inhabited um, Port Phillip Bay a very, very long time ago. So um, this week, Ben's sort of taking us through the methodology of how you recreate an animal um, from only a, a couple of body parts that are really super small. So in his case, it's a few teeth. How do you create a megalodon when all you've got is a couple of teeth? It's fascinating because there's, I think there's a lot of um, arguments amongst various paleontologists exactly what things look like and there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know because they are working with so few things. But what they can do is phenomenal. So I can't wait to have this chat. Sounds like there's a whole show in that. Yeah, there probably is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that will be fun to talk to Ben. We are then going to cross down to the Mornington Peninsula to catch up with Myra Kelly for a dive report. She's already sent an image from Rye Pier where it seems like actually quite nice conditions. She said the car park down there is empty at the moment and the water looks actually not too bad. So we'll catch up with Myra for a dive report. Uh, also, um, if you follow our Facebook page, you'll see a spectacular photo of a Verco's nudibranch, which I put up, which <laughs> was taken by Myra and she getting right into her nudibranch photography at the moment. Yeah, well, the sea slug centres just finished up last weekend, so we had some beautiful shots come through. I did write some stats down. I think we had 420 nudibranchs were spotted um, and 79 species. That's just so far, so wow. there's probably more to come in. Wow, So the Victoria dive species. community is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. absolutely amazing. So. Everyone's getting amongst it. We do love our nudibranchs. Um, we are then going to cross to Sydney 
to speak with uh, uh, Dr. Rob Brando, who goes by the name of Dr. Rip. Now, he is a coastal geomorphologist, uh, has been working in the field for a very long time and has written um, a book called Dr. Rip's Essential Beach Book, Everything You Need to Know About Surf, Sand and Rips. It's, uh, it's a beauty. I had a really good look through it yesterday. It covers kind of everything that you need to know really about coastlines and how waves form, what rips are. I didn't realise there were so many different types of rips and, the, and there are. So he's going to um, – we're going to talk to, to Rob. Or I really start, need to start thinking of him as Dr. Rip. Yes, we should have had Dr. Beach and Dr. Surf on interviewing <laughs> Dr. Rip. It would have been the trifecta. Would we have should perfect. have. Good yes. point. We're going to have to get him back on again. Yeah, we will. Line it up. Um, yes, definitely. So anyway, we'll catch up with uh, Dr. Rip. And then to close the show. Yeah, we're going to have Zoe Britton back from Deakin University um, with a segment that we're coining Seaweed is the New Black. Mm. Um, you can't escape it. It's basically popping up in the news all over the place. And But she's going to talk about a cooking workshop that she recently did with the Wutherong um, community and you know, give us a bit of a lowdown on cooking with seaweed, um, how it's done and how um, some of that knowledge is passed on. And, yeah, I, we're going to have her back next year to continue this segment. There's a whole lot of stuff we've got to unpack with seaweed. Yeah, excellent. Good to hear. So that's our program. Uh, do you have a bit of a weather forecast for us, Cade? I do. Today's looking pretty good. There's some light winds around, um, mostly southerly, so morning to peninsula is going to be your spot for a dive or um, even over the ballerine. We've got a top of 19 today. And then that pretty much sets the scene for the rest of the week. There's not much rain this week, but we've just got those sort of milder temperatures, you know, highs of 18 and 19 and lows around that sort of 12, 11. Um, lots of southerlies in there, so the diving on those sort of spots that are protected to be good. Surfing's probably not so good at the moment, um, but you might be able to find a wave if you can find a nice little corner tucked in away. It's 9.14, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Very exciting as always to welcome to Radio Marinara coastal paleontologist extraordinaire Ben Francischelli. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Always such a lovely introduction. I love it when you guys introduce me. It's always so nice. Are we the best at introducing you? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, almost in every other segment I get, like I, I sometimes when I go on the ABC, they still mispronounce my name every time. <laughs> it's really not it's that been, hard. It's Franceschetti sometimes, <laughs> and I'm like, it's very close to the spaghetti sometimes when they do it. Uh, yeah, so no, I very much appreciate the uh, the introduction. It's very nice. Excellent. Let's um, let's talk about uh, how. I've stumbled all over all my words. All my words have left my head. You peaked at the start, right? Yeah, I know, I know. I've just gone downhill from here. All right, so we're talking about recreating megalodons from teeth effectively, aren't we, in an artistic sense? Is that the best way to describe what we're doing? That is is 100% correct. So with my gallery exhibition that's happening for Bayside City Council, I've got this very exciting opportunity to actually collaborate with a few artists and in doing so create kind of life-size murals of what these animals once looked like. And there's a whole bunch of animals there's there's that pelagornis that giant pseudo-toothed terrifying looking bird with wingspan six meters long there's you know killer sperm whales through the wazoo and then of course there's the enigmatic and utterly befitting (laughs) megalodon and what's so utterly fascinating about it is that trying to recreate an animal from something that you've only got teeth from is extraordinarily difficult to do. Like, wh- where would you even start, bro? What, what would you do? What, how would you even attempt to do something like that? I couldn't. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> I'd end up creating something that was so completely unlike the actual original creature. That's why we leave it to the professionals like yourself, Ben. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I guess you'd start making a jaw, wouldn't you? You'd start to figure what it looks like in the jaw and then, I don't know, extrapolate from there. Pretty much, yeah. So there's not many complete specimens of megalodons that are known, unfortunately. Most of them are just isolated teeth. But what you can do from those isolated teeth, and the very big ones as well, is you can kind of make it out so you can get a rough size estimate of how big the animal could have opened its jaw at any given time. And it would have been a monstrous jaw, definitely capable of swallowing me whole. So we know that at the very least. We know that the megalodon died out three and a half million years ago and left no living descendant whatsoever. There was a strain of science throughout the mid-90s that thought that the great white shark was a living descendant of the megalodon. How wrong they were. It could not be more wrong if they tried, of course, because we found that the great white sharks actually evolved from a mako-like ancestry. And there's all these fabulous fossils that show us how they slowly uh, obtained serrations throughout their evolutionary uh, uprise into the great animal that they are today. But we have to look at a whole bunch of other pieces of evidence as well in order to kind of categorize how what, what how we would even start to draw this creature. So I, I've got uh, Zev Landis, who's an amazing artist from the Basque Coast, and Ruri Duncan, who is a PhD student at Monash at the moment working on ancient whales. And that's going to be one of the questions we try and tackle in terms of trying to figure it out. We know it's a big shark. But should the shark look like a great white shark? Should it look like a whale shark? Should it look like a basking shark? There's all these questions that we still have that we need to be answering. So will your approach be to take the teeth that we do have and compare them to all these different types of sharks that exist today? So for one of the sharks, which is called Cosmopolitotus plicatilis, it's quite a mouthful. Oh, sorry, you can you say, say that? Three... <laughs> You've got to say that again. I'll say it three times. Sounds twice. like a cocktail. Cosmopolitotus plicatilis. It's a beautiful, yeah, actually it could be a good Cosmo. So <laughs> you could just imagine a little straw coming out of it and the, and the cherry on top as well. But uh, it's a fabulous shark, Cosmopolitotus plicatilis. It would have gone to more than seven metres in length. And that's one thing that we'll be doing in the exhibition itself is actually recreating the jaws on the wall on that everyone can because we have so many wonderful teeth of it and then starting to ask the question all right so what did it look like and with that one we can confidently say it's pretty close relative of the great white shark there's many different teeth found all across the world so we know that it's probably the great white shark in proportion but one thing with the megalodon that i find so interesting is that everyone draws a megalodon like that of a great white shark and yes it's approaching an apex predator niche just in the same way that a great white shark is but they're separated by in excess of more than 100 million years of evolution. That's just how broadly different they are. So one thing that I want to do is kind of showcase in the artistry the megalodon is different from a great white. They would have had a much blunter nose for a start because the prey that they're trying to feast on rather than the kind of pointed nose that you'd see in a great white shark are big whales. So if you've got a big bouncy nose, it doesn't really help when you go to charge, you know, head first into your prey if you're going to bump into something and potentially fracture some of the cartilage in the nose there. So, but yeah, that's some insight that I'm giving you now as to how we're going to go about doing it. It's absolutely amazing. Can you say the name of that, uh, the name again? Because I'll tell you why I'm thinking this is, uh, it sounds a bit like a polyrhythm. I'm thinking we might have to hand this one over to Mel Webb to create a song, song out of it. Yes. He'll see it as a challenge. Cosmopolitotus plicatilis. And it was seven metres long. It was one yeah, of the wow. biggest sharks that 
ever existed and it's not hyped up enough because it's around at exactly the same time that the megalodon is and of course the megalodon is just the biggest thing that's ever lived in the ocean like when you consider predators i know blue whales are bigger that was the false statement that i made there but (laughs) yes you know everyone's megalodon this megalodon that we're going to give some love to some of the other smaller sharks that are just as fascinating and so have you got an idea of what the finished product will look like because this is an art exhibition yes what what are you aiming Uh, for here uh, so what we're aiming for is to showcase many of the amazing fossil discoveries exactly alongside where the artistry is actually going to take place. So where you see the huge tooth of Liviatan, the giant killer sperm whale with a skull the size of a small car, that skull will be juxtaposed directly behind the tooth itself. Yeah. So you can get an idea of just how massive these creatures are, because if you can't visualize them, you can see the fossils and some of the fossils don't look that extraordinary already. Like when you look at the giant tooth of Liviatan, it looks like a huge yam. And that's usually, you know, like a hot potato of some kind. Um, But when you have the skull behind it and you can visualize exactly all the tendons and everything else and the huge teeth jutting out of its jaws, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Yeah, I'm just trying to visualize the space that you're going to be doing this in. It's going to be people taking selfies all over the shop because obviously you're going to need a large space for this. And then obviously it sounds quite dramatic. I'm excited. Yeah, so June 2024 in the Bayside Gallery itself is where it's going to take place. And uh, one of the prompts that I gave the artists, Zev and Ruri, it needs to be Instagrammable. Every single one of these things that you create so that people can stand next to them and then just like, we can put it online. And then we can continue to go and get feedback from that. And their work can get promoted in doing so as well. Yeah, brilliant. Anything else you want to plug before we let you go, Ben? Yes, actually, I've got a talk with the Australian Marine Sciences Association of Victoria on Sunday, the 18th of November. I've always got talks. I'm sorry. I feel like I always come on here and plug something at the end of everything. But uh, I'm going to be talking about the last 30 million years of evolution along the Victorian coastline. And we're going to be looking at animals that I'm going to be talking about in the exhibition. I'm going to be looking at the surf coast. We're going to be going all the way down Bellarine Peninsula as well. Saturday, the 18th of November from 2 to 4.30 at Deakin University at the Waterfront Campus. If you check out the Australian Marine Sciences Association Victoria Facebook page, you'll get the links there. But come along. It'll be really fun. There's a whole bunch of other uh, people who are also talking. There's a great white shark uh, scientist as well who's also going to be doing some really fascinating insights into their evolution and diet. Excellent. Ben, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. Um, I'll do it sometime this afternoon. I uh, can go through and have a look at that spectacular cartoon that we've posted of you um, yeah. getting very excited <laughs> yeah. about ear bones. Yeah, no. So, Zev, um, I, I gave a talk at – where was it? Oh, my goodness. It was Phillip Island's uh, Whale Festival last year, and Zev was just drawing some funny caricatures in the background of me. And he drew me after I was saying – Ear bones are my favorite bones to find in the fossil record because they represent a <laughs> fingerprint to understanding what these species were doing throughout evolutionary time. And then he's literally got a little torchlight of me <laughs> trying to examine an ear bone of a living Liviatan. It's very funny. Which is kind of like a human ear, human ear that's sort of been slapped onto the side of <laughs> an ancient creature. It's very, yeah. very funny. If you, if you also, I should just give a plug to Zev as well because his work is really awesome. And if you're keen to go and see some of the work, he's a really great cartoonist as well. He's at Zev Lanzi's on Instagram. Go and check him out. It's he's really fun to work with. Yeah, great. We've actually already put a link to your Instagram, uh, a fool's experiment. So can people reach Zev through there? They definitely can. Excellent. As well, brilliant. Always a pleasure, Ben. Awesome source. Super fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll catch you before the end of the year. Okay. Catch you. Thanks, Ben. Bye. Bye for now.
coastal paleontologist Ben Francischelli and yes, a fool's experiment. You can reach that through our Facebook page. 924, you're listening to Radio Marinari here on 3RRR. All right, time to go to Myra for the dive report. Good morning, Myra. Good morning, Brian and Cade. How are you both? Yeah, well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. We've got the sun down here at Rye. It's uh, come out. Uh, there's about seven divers down here. Two have already entered the water and... Uh, my dive buddy, Will, and I have already got our wetsuits on and, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting wet. Now, I can see that there was, um, just from some notes that you've sent through, that the viz at Flinders was pretty astronomically <laughs> good yesterday. Yeah, look, I had a, a surface interval yesterday, but, oh, my God, I wish I was at Flinders yesterday. Uh, Gavin Dunk put a report through uh, yesterday morning. They had an amazing 15 metres plus visibility uh, weedy sea dragons were just everywhere and it sounds by all accounts people that were in the water had a really good dive. Now I mentioned at the start of the show that you sent in a photo from Ryan. It was looking pretty good. What what are the conditions like at the moment on the on the bay side of the Mornington Peninsula? Look, on the bay side at the moment, we've got a, a really, really gentle westerly wind. Um, it is, it is uh, yeah, virtually no winds down here at all. The water, um, I am tipping we've got some really clean water in the bay at the moment. Um, the, the water here does look really, really lovely. I've had reports yesterday from Portsea uh, that they had really clean water there. There was reports Blair Gowrie, clean water. And the divers that had a bit of a change of location yesterday that were out on the boats, they didn't quite get out to uh, Lonsdale Wall and the bombies out there. Um, sorry, Lonsdale Arches. They had their dive relocated to the Eliza Ramsden and got to dive that amazing wreck just at the... Um, right on the heads at near Corsair Rock and they said their visibility there was just epic, like absolutely off the charts. So not only did they have um, the opportunity to dive in a, a really amazing wreck that most of us don't get an opportunity to because it's in the shipping channel, they had that coupled with some really great visibility and the photographs that Scuba Doctor have put up are um, yeah, definitely worthwhile having a look um, to see what you might be able to jump on with the boats in the future. Yeah, fantastic. Have you done that one, Mara? Oh, no, <laughs> I was scheduled to uh, to do that on Cup Day. We headed out with uh, with Bay City Charters Cup Day, and uh, unfortunately, because the Eliza Ramsden is in the shipping channel, uh, there were obviously container ships operating, and we got lo- relocated to uh, one of the dive sites on Lonsdale Wall. We were still really lucky. We had an, a really really beautiful dive, um, probably one of the most amazing dives I've had. In, in 12 months. Visibility, again, was really great. The topography of that site was, yeah, just absolutely beautiful. The sponge life, the colours. Um, to be in the water again with the, the southern blue devils, uh, one of my favourite fish um, amongst the boar fish, the magpie perch. Um, there was even a really small shark. I didn't get it on film, but my buddy also saw it. So it, uh, it wasn't something that I imagined. Um, and on the, the, the Monday, we also got on the boats as well, uh, and we went out and we did dive Lonsdale Arches on the Monday. Yeah, So brilliant. another really great site there too. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, we'll have to move on, Myra, but um, looking forward yep. to, uh, to catching up with you in the next couple of weeks. Um, one thing to quickly end on, um, what's the water temperature doing at the moment? The water temperature is rising. We're getting solid 16, possibly even 17. So... Uh, it's been great to see so many snorkelers getting out as well, um, making the most of the slightly warmer conditions. So um, get out there this morning, get out there early and get wet, get salty and uh, enjoy yourself. Excellent. Hey, thanks, Myra. Always wonderful to have your dive report, your expertise. You are out there all the time, so we know that what we're getting is legit uh, and uh, look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks.
Thanks, Brian. Okay. Kate, have a good day. Thanks, you All too, right. Morris. See ya. Mara Kelly there, our dive reporter. Triple R is where you are. Radio Marinara is the name of this program and uh, it's with great excitement and pleasure that we welcome some live music into the studio. Uh, Dave from Dave and the Daves. Good morning. Good morning there. Yes, I'm doing a uh, depression comedy called Still Here by Dave and the Daves. Now, uh, people who might recognise your voice might remember that uh, this was a long time ago, so I'm guessing maybe not many people will, but maybe some might. Um, the Bongo Brothers, you came in with the Bongo Brothers That's quite some right. time we ago. That's right. We did a live taiko percussion piece, I think. No, we played a track, but um, even before that, way back in the day, it did a, had a triple R show for two and a half years, and it was back in the day when they would give silly 17-year-olds a go on the radio <laughs> with the... Uh, I don't want to go out show, so I'm happy that, you know, Triple R's a little bit more pro now. Yeah, fantastic. Now, tell us about Still Here, because it starts it's, uh, yeah, it's at the Butterfly this Club week. this week. Yeah. yeah, it starts on Thursday at the Butterfly Club. It's on at 7pm, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And uh, there's a bunch of different Daves in the show. There's a professional actor, Uncle David. He, he can only get gigs in Queensland golf clubs. But um, I brought him into the studio, so he's going to uh-huh. sing a little song called All the World's Your Prawn, which uh, do you, you like, I guess you guys like prawns. Is that compulsory? <laughs> yeah, I think it is part of the gig, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. And I like you've got um, the uh, treasure chest that you're wearing with it. We've got a bit of glittering gold in the studio too. Yeah, I've got a bit of a good jacket for radio. Uh, it's <laughs> actually gold and I do have a wig, but uh, with the headphones a wig won't fit on, so I'll, I'll just try and act. Yeah, it is a splendid yes. gold sequin jacket. So this is David from uh, the, the Brisbane... Um, uh, Uncle David. Uncle David. Uncle David. Okay, would you like to introduce him? Yeah. Okay. G'day. Greetings and salutations, Triple R listeners and Radio Marinara. My name is Uncle David. You might be able to tell by my haircut that I'm actually a professional actor. Now, what that means is my voice and body is totally in tune with itself, every single muscle and sinew available to me at a single command. Is it possible to get a bit of guitar in the headphones? If not, I'll uh, just pretend I can hear it. You see, has anyone ever just popped out for one drink? Anyone ever had a friend that says, yeah, let's just pop out for one? Well, David was panicking about his show. He was starting to get anxious and depressed, and his mum asked me to take him out just for one drink. And, oh, we popped out for one, and we had another one, and one more after that. And I guess you could say we're getting a little bit tipsy. But, um, anyway, we had a few more, and a couple of shooters, and... uh, bottle of tequila and I guess you could say we're getting absolutely freaking maggoted but David got this strange look in his eye and he reached out across the table and he picked up my hand and he said Uncle David all the world's your prawn and I looked at this bloke with his big heart and his bloodshot eyes and I said oyster all the world's my oyster no 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 I said all the world's your prawn Uh, So this song is called All the Worlds You Brought. Here we go. Sometimes that world is your prawn Like a big red and white stripey one up at Ballina. Oh, just a point for people who like giant prawns. It's actually been repainted. Looks magnificent. Sometimes that world is your prawn But there's plenty other things in that sea 
like jelly blubbers and blue bottles and things that look really freaking weird and tiny stuff called plankton which makes the whale so huge yeah, sometimes that world is your prawn Okay, what we're going to do, Marinaro, is we didn't actually talk about this. I probably should have asked, but uh, we're going to go for a bit of a group sing-along. <laughs> and it's amazing you sing this song, and uh, before you know it, I'm bronze shaking her head and putting up her hands. But it's great. You sing this song, and before you know it, you've had a good family Christmas. Very simple. Sometimes the world is your brawn. Here we go. Sometimes that world is your brawn. That's good. A little bit louder, a little bit louder. Sometimes that world is your brood. Let's really work the abdomen now. Sometimes that world is your brood. Oh, that's good. That'll do you, though. Sometimes you get a bit of a woody. <clears throat> yes, sometimes that world... How's my hair, Kate? Looking good. ...is your brood. Thanks, Radio Marinara. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, I don't sing, but thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Thank I you for having me. I wouldn't suggest anyone to torture. <laughs> no, that was good. So, uh, yeah, you can come along and sing and do some harmonies. There's lots of audience participation in this show, and, yeah, it is mainly a comedy, but it also covers some serious themes of depression and, uh, I guess, a bit of anxiety. And, yeah, to, it's not to bring everyone down, but... Um, Suicide is the it's the leading cause of death in Australia for fifteen to forty four year olds, and um, yeah, there's other statistics. Nine people take their life every day. So the, the part of the show has got some a bit of heaviness, but that's mainly my character, and the, all the other Daves are up for gags and comedy. Dave, Fantastic. it's uh, it's been great having you in here, and all the best for uh, still here, which is on again as we mentioned this coming. Thursday, Thursday Friday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday at the, the Butterfly Club. Butterfly Club, seven pm. Yeah, great. We'll put all. We'll put a link to that on oh, our Facebook page. Thanks so well. much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks great. For coming in. Thanks that so much great. for coming in. That was wonderful. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Uh, Rob Brander, also known as Dr Rip, is a coastal scientist at the University of New South Wales. He specialises in rip currents and beach safety and has just released the ultimate guide to beach safety, Dr Rip's Essential Beach Book. It's filled with all the practical information you need to know when heading to the beach this summer. To find out about the book and the ultimate question, how do you spot a rip? Let's cross to Sydney now. Dr Rip, Rob Brander, welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, first up, can you talk us through how you got the name Dr. Rip? Yeah, well, I I started, uh, I did my PhD studying rip currents um, on some beaches in Sydney, and as part of that, I would throw purple dye into the rip currents, and then I started to do community talks about rips and put this purple dye in, and if you watch Bondi Rescue, the lifeguards at Bondi just give everyone a nickname, and they just started calling me Dr. Rip, and that kind of stuck. 
Um, it's, I'll talk about Bondi and, and life saving in a minute because this bring, this is brought out in your book, which uh, I didn't realise that um, the world practice of life saving actually began in Sydney. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I wanted to ask you about. I uh, mentioned you're a coastal geomorphologist. Coastal geomorph. I'll say that again. Do you want to have a crack at this, Cade? Coastal geomorphologist. Thank you, Cade. What is a coastal geomorphologist? Yeah, you're not the only one that has that problem. It tends to tends to bring on a thousand yard stairs. But most people seem to understand what a geologist is. A geologist kind of studies the rocks and the earth's formations, whereas a geomorphologist really studies the processes that shape landforms. So, a coastal geomorphologist studies the processes like waves, currents that shape beaches and sandbars and anything to do with the coast, really. And I should mention also in the intro, you're very much recognised for your work in researching how coasts and current work, currents work. You've been awarded a Eureka Prize for promoting the understanding of science research and also this year, member of the Order of Australia for Service to Coastal Science and the Australian Community through Beach Safety Research and Education. So this is pretty amazing, Dr Rib. Um, so congratulations on all those awards. Yeah. <laughs> what, what led you to this? What led you to become Australia's specialist in rip currents and beach safety? Well, I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. I, it's interesting, you know, there's always moments in life that trigger things, and for me it was when I first came to Australia, having studied beaches in Canada, um, and a friend of mine pointed out a rip current at a beach, on um, a Sydney beach, and I couldn't see it. And I thought, how can I not see this thing that I've been studying? So that got me interested in rips. I came back and I did my PhD, and that was great, because everybody kind of related to rip currents, and they could understand what I was doing, which is nice. But then I started thinking that, you know, is my research actually saving lives? And I witnessed a few drownings in beautiful, calm days in a rip current that should never have happened. And I just started thinking, well, you know, if only that person had a little bit of knowledge about what was going on, that wouldn't have happened. And I realized, well, I've got this knowledge. I need to get it out to people. So I started doing this community education program at my surf club in Sydney, and we would just do it for free and invite people along. And I'd give a talk about how beaches worked and then we'd, and rips, and we'd do a die release. And, and that just became, you know, people would come up to me and say, oh, you know, I've, I've lived on the beach all my life, but, but I've never understood any of this stuff. And I thought, okay. And so I started going to schools, and it's just built this community beach safety effort. And I think, yeah, it's just become a passion, and it's just become, I guess, my my purpose in life, if you like, is, is to stop people drowning on beaches by educating them about how beaches and rip currents work. Yeah, there's a really great quote in the book where you say that rips don't um, drown people, people drown in rips. I think that's a really, it was a bit of a, a little wake-up call sort of um, light bulb moment for me reading that. Yeah, I actually stole that from Bruce Hopkins, who's the main lifeguard at Bondi Beach. Again, if you watch Bondi Rescue. But, but I thought Bruce said that to me, and I thought he's right, because... You know, rips aren't scary. You you go to the beach, you might be afraid of sharks. They look scary. But you look at a beautiful beach, and it looks benign and safe. But it might have a whole bunch of these rip currents. And so you go on the water, you go to the beach expecting to have a fun time, and you're in the water, and suddenly you're being drawn offshore. But the rips, they're just taking you for a ride. They're, they don't pull you under the water. They don't take you across the ocean. They're not taking the shark-infested water. But it's fear, and it's panic that brings on the drowning. So the rip is just taking you for a ride, but it's people's reaction that, that causes the drowning. It's interesting you say that, taking you for a ride. I've been surfing for quite a long time, and the first thing I look for when I get to a beach is a rip, so I don't have to paddle as much. Yeah, it for sure. does all the work for me. And um, I've been told, like, your book basically, using plain English, 
basically describes how to spot a rip and sort of all those things around it, which I guess in essence is probably tapping into a surfer's brain in some way because they see it without even putting it into scientific yep. terms. They just observe it and know it's there from years of experience. And, yeah, how did you go putting that into a book? Because I'm struggling to articulate it. And <laughs> yet you've managed yeah. to write a book about it. It's not easy, but you're right about surfers. I mean, I love surfers. They'll run a kilometer down the road to get to the beach, and then they'll stop, and they'll look. And, sure, they're looking for where the best waves are, but they're also looking for where the rips are to take them out. And, and you're right. They can see them automatically, and, and I can see rips automatically now. And I forget what it was like to learn, but it's often experiential, but it's often having somebody teach you what to look for. So there's different types of rips, but most rips sit in these deep channels between shallow sandbars. And the waves will break on the shallow sandbar, so the water is very white, a lot of breaking waves, whereas the rips are in these deeper water channels. Deeper water is always darker. So when you look at the ocean, you know, you're scanning the beach for a couple of minutes, and you're looking for these persistent dark green gaps going out through the white water, and those rips might be 5, 10, 20 meters wide, but the saying I've got is white is nice, green is mean. You know, you spend a few minutes looking, White is nice because breaking waves means it's shallow. You can stand up. That water's coming to the beach. But those green gaps, those are probably your rips. So that's one thing to look at. A little bit of elevation helps. Looking down at the beach always helps wearing polarized sunnies, but you're looking for these dark gaps pretty much. There's other, And the other thing is that rips, bring, you know, rips are flowing offshore like a river, whereas the waves are still coming towards the beach. So you've got this interaction of water that creates this sort of bumpy, ripply, textured surface that looks different. So there's quite a few different visual clues, but it's practice. You know, you're not just going to read a book and look at a few pictures and go, oh, I'm an expert. You have to go to the beach and put it in practice and ask people, ask lifeguards where are the rips, and you'll get it. I mean, if I can grow up in the suburbs in Canada and learn how to spot rips, anybody can. Yeah. I just want to take a quick look at the book. There are six chapters. The first one's called The Sands of Time, uh, Beaches, Past, Present and Future. I wanted to also mention to um, Rob that this is not a science book. And You and I spoke yesterday about this um, when we were talking about our chat today. Um, it's, there's a lot of science in it, but it's not a science book. You don't need to kind of have a degree to understand it, do you? No, not at all. It's not a textbook. It's basically these community talks I've been giving, which is called The Science of the Surf, explains how beaches work. There's a beach safety theme, but it's, I, I'm trying to bring out the fascinating aspects of beaches. If you're interested at all in beaches, there's a story behind how the sand got there. There's a story behind how the waves come in. There's a story about how waves break. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm also putting in personal stories about things that I'm doing and my experiences uh, working at the beach and just holidaying at beaches all my life. So I'm just trying to make a, a book that people will really enjoy get 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 a lot of useful information out of yeah i've certainly have done that there's all sorts of interesting sections in here um there's a section on the the curse of black sand and where that's come from as well that's also in chapter one chapter two is uh about the science of surf so how waves form connection to wind how you measure wave height and the concept of wave sets uh what makes a wave dump which is uh really fascinating as well um i'm just going to quickly rip through these because we're, we're rapidly running out of time um chapter three is motions of the ocean so tide tsunamis and storms and uh, actually just pausing on this one that um, some uh, evidence that storm surges are more damaging than tsunamis which I found fascinating well when you get a big cyclone or hurricane or typhoon they're basically the same thing but you know the, the water level can rise 10 meters and when you it hits areas the low-lying areas that are densely populated in Southeast Asia comes to mind 
you can get as much damage, uh, infrastructure damage and loss of life as you can with a catastrophic tsunami. Yeah. Uh, chapter 4, um, as you mentioned, white is nice and green is mean. So the Chapter 4 is really all about rips. I didn't realise there were so many different types of rips, Rob. There's channelized rips, boundary rips, flash rips, swash rips, mega rips. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. that's, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. So different types of rips, and is that kind of determined by the coastline? And like, I guess there's yeah. so many different factors in here. Yeah, I mean, the channelized rips happen every... Well, any beach that's got breaking waves and a bunch of sandbars will have these channelized rips in the world. Um, and these boundary rips are channelized rips against structures like headlands and rocks and piers and jetties, which is why you should never swim there. Mega rips occur when you get massive storms, so you're not going to be swimming anyway. But these flash rips are tricky because when you get waves, a couple of big waves suddenly break, the water level rises and just pops out, and it creates this flash rip that might last for a minute, and then it disappears, and then it happens somewhere else on the beach. So they look like turbulent, streaky water with clouds of sand, and they happen on messy days when you're probably not going to be swimming. But they're the tricky ones. The channelized ones, they're locked in place, and they can be there for days, weeks, and months. So they look like the dark gas. And they're the, you know, get your eye in on them. The flash rips are a bit tricky. Last two chapters, one's um, uh, uh, chapter five is called Life's a Beach uh, and talks really about the ins and outs of beaches and, and how you might kind of think about a perfect beach. And then chapter six is about hazards. So it's biohazards, sharks and stingers. Um, so, look, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Dr. Rip's Essential Beach Book, Everything You Need to Know About Surf, Sand and Rips. It's published by uh, University of New South Wales. Um, and look, all the best, Rob. It's been great having you on. I'd like to uh, talk to you again in the future. It'd be really good to, to unpack this stuff a bit more, particularly getting into the ins and outs of rips because we've really only just scratched the surface. So, um, yeah, it'd be great to have you back on sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. And, you know, going into summer and over summer, it's so important and people seem to be receptive to this information because they're going to beaches, so happy to do it. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, thanks, Rob. Been great speaking with you. We'll talk to you again. Thanks very much. Okay, bye for now. Rob Brander there, um, a.k.a. Dr. Rip. And uh, we've already put a link to the book on our Facebook page. If you just click on the image, it'll take you through um, to the University of New South Wales Press and you can find out more. 9.52, you're listening to Radio Marinara. Um, we can, in just a moment, speak with Zoe Britton. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Right now we are joined on the line by Zoe Britton from the Deakin Seaweed Research Group. Welcome back, Zoe. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Look, we're coining your segment, um, Seaweed is the New Black, because they seem to be the, the topic of discussion at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, I definitely, uh, it's so exciting for us to see such growing interest in the general public about something that we're kind of obsessed with, so I agree. <laughs> yeah, look, now we don't have much time this morning, unfortunately, so we're going to get straight into, I guess, why we got you on. Um, I spoke to you a while back and we're going to get you on air and you're like, oh, I don't know what to talk about, but I, and then you just sort of casually mentioned that you're doing a cooking with seaweed workshop and I'm like, well, okay, there's the topic. Um, what... Can you tell us about this workshop? 
Yeah, so it's part of the work that I'm doing with um, Wathorong Aboriginal Co-op in the Geelong region around revitalising their um, traditional knowledge around seaweeds. And so we got to spend two awesome days down on the surf coast in uh, Geelong region where we went foraging for a day with seaweeds to learn how to harvest them sustainably and the culturally important species. And then we spent a day um, in a workshop like learning to cook a bit of a fusion of... um, cultural Japanese and Western recipes with all um, native seaweeds. So I just wanted to, I guess, one first thing, as far as the foraging and the collecting of seaweeds, if people are sitting at home going, oh, that sounds like a great idea, is that, are there permits required? Um, are there, like, can you take beach wash-up? Like, what's the sort of rules around collection of seaweed at the moment? Yeah, well, unfortunately, in terms of regulation, seaweed kind of hasn't been thought about much. So the rules aren't too specific in Victoria, at least. They sort of count it as seafood, which is kind of random to be grouped in with fish and things like that. But the general rules are if it's washed up on the beach on the high tide line and it's nice and fresh and it's outside of a marine protected area, then you're pretty good to go down and harvest some. And in terms of harvesting from the water at low tide, that goes the same if it's not in protected areas. But it's just important to make sure we're not taking too much because it um, is really important for habitat. And if we're harvested in fresh, that we're only taking um, bits of the plant and leaving the main bit of the plant to regenerate. Fantastic. Well, that's great for people that are listening. It gives them a bit of a guide of what they can do. Now, what I want to know um, when it comes to the cooking side, reds, green, greens, browns, what are you using? Are you using the whole lot? Um, do they taste yeah. different? Like, what's the differences between them? Yeah, so that we use all of them and a really great way to use all of them is one of the things we do is we'll process them, so whether that's um, drying them in certain ways or, or blanching them in boiling water depending on the species um, and then you can um, grind it up into a sort of powder and so some of the browns that are a bit more tough are really great in this sort of powder that you can then use as like a bit of a sprinkle, like a salt replacement or you can add it into things like bread making and give it a really lovely salty flavour. The other ones that are really good to have sort of in your food are lots of those greens like you might know the sea lettuce that people see or um, some of the codium species which is a green fellow that looks like fingers. Um, They're really good to have baked into things and then the reds, what we call sort of the fleshy reds, some of them that might be a bit see-through. They're actually really good um, raw, often with desserts. They have a bit of a salted caramel vibe. So you can use them right across all different things. Yum. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were mentioning there was sort of a bit uh, cross-cultural sort of learnings with the, the cooking. Um, I was interested in some, I guess, the traditional owner's way of um, cooking because, you know, that's something that's been around for a long time. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, one of the ones that we did, we um, experimented with a range of teas, so turning some of the dried seaweeds um, into a tea with some other traditional things like um, you know, stinging nettle or lemon myrtle and seeing if we could come with a mix. The funny thing about um, some of the recipes done traditionally is they were described to me by um, Auntie Judy uh, as 
like eating Brussels sprouts as a child. So (laughs) her grandparents would make her eat them because it's good for her, but might not necessarily taste the best. So we had a few recipes like that. And then we had some like um, other recipes that were a bit more flavorful, like um, steaming a fish amongst seaweed on on the stove and then getting all that delicious seaweed flavor into the um, fish and being able to eat that just with like a real enhanced sort of um, oceany flavor. Look, I have a thousand more questions, so we are definitely going to get you back on before the end of the year to keep going through with this. But if people want to get involved, um, how can they sort of get in touch with you or how can they find out more? Yeah, so you can always follow along on the lab's Facebook page, which is Deacon Seaweed or Would You Like Seaweed with that. And if you are an Aboriginal person and would like to come along to some future workshops we're having in January and February, you can follow Wadderong Cooperative um, on Facebook and they'll share all of the upcoming events there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zoe. And as I said, we'll get you back on later. Thanks for your time. No worries. See you later. Bye. Thank you. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.